X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Tuesday, October 13th. October 13th is perhaps the perfect day to subscribe to The Local and to tell 27 friends or one. Just one friend. 27 or one. Either one. Nothing in between. Today, back in the day, October 13th, 1792, the cornerstone of the White House was laid. Eight years later, John Adams was the first president to live in that mansion. The writer Clarence Lusain reminds us in his book, The Black History of the White House, that the White House was built with slave labor. At least eight presidents owned slaves during their terms. And each day wouldn't be the same, except for today, back in the day, October 13th, 1884, the International Meridian Conference. Prior to the conference, the United States listed 100 different local times varying by over three hours. The conference sought to standardize time for the sake of accuracy and international commerce. The conference voted on the location of the Prime Meridian. Ultimately, they decided on Greenwich, London and implemented a 24-hour clock. And today, back in the day, October 13, 1995, the Beverly Cleary Sculpture Garden was dedicated on the west side of Grant Park. The garden features three bronze statues depicting characters in the Ramona Quimby series. Beverly Cleary grew up in the neighborhood and frequently played in Grant Park. We'll start with your quick six news headlines and an interview focused on the Multnomah County library ballot measure because everybody likes the rough and tumble politics of library ballot measures. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. Monday was Indigenous Peoples Day, a time to recognize America's native cultures, reckon with history, and mourn a corrective loss. And Sunday night, protesters, including Indigenous protesters and allies, tore down two statues of former U.S. presidents, Roosevelt and Lincoln. Organizers called the event Indigenous Peoples Day of Rage. About 200 people gathered at the South Park blocks to topple a statue of Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt supported violent policies against Indigenous tribes during his time as president. And minutes later, protesters tore down a statue of Lincoln as well. They spray-painted Dakota 38 on the base of the statue, referencing 38 men executed on Lincoln's orders in 1862 as part of a continued war against the Dakota people. Protesters also caused damage to the Oregon Historical Society, the PSU campus, security office, and a few surrounding buildings. The gathering was declared a riot at 9.40 p.m. Mayor Wheeler held a press conference with Police Chief Chuck Lavelle, the Executive Director of the Oregon Historical Society, and Representative Tana Sanchez Monday morning. Candidate for Mayor Sarah Anarone, while recognizing the rage, condemned the destruction of art in the Historical Society. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, 222 new cases. We're now up to 37,467. Health officials report that during September, COVID-19 cases increased by 40% in Multnomah County. They say it's possible the rain is to blame. Blame it on the rain that was finally falling. Blame it. I'm sorry. I had to do it. It said it right there. It said it. I didn't write it down. They wrote it down. It said, yeah, it's, it's, they said it's possible that the rain is to blame. There it goes again. Spending more time indoors where there's less ventilation increases the risk of catching the virus. Thankfully, yesterday, there were no new deaths from the virus. That leaves the total number of deaths steady at 599. Meanwhile, the President of the United States is holding all kinds of rallies and saying he's happy to kiss supporters. Washington State has reported 93,095 COVID-19 cases since the pandemic began and 2,190 deaths. States along the Columbia River Basin are committing to preserving salmon and steelhead populations. Oregon, Washington, Montana, and Idaho announced on Friday they were going to partner to preserve those vulnerable animals. The process will include federal agencies, local stakeholders, and tribal leaders. 
that includes the recognition of treaties and natives' cultural rights to natural resources. State governments have already committed to preserving two dozen salmon and steelhead stocks in the Columbia Basin. The next phase of the project is going to be to identify factors affecting the goal. Those include social, economic, and environmental factors that have led to salmon being in decline in the region for decades now in the hopes to reverse that and bolster those numbers going forward. Ted Wheeler may stop police from covering badge numbers during protests. The Portland Police Bureau officers have been covering their badge numbers since June on the orders of then-Chief Jamie Resch. Police say they've been covering the badges to prevent protesters from doxing them online. That is, releasing personal information like their names, home addresses. But covering their badges also prevents protesters from filing police brutality complaints or seeking other forms of accountability. So Ted Wheeler has asked the Police Bureau to work with legal counsel and HR to find some kind of alternative to covering badge numbers. Police accountability has been a major topic of discussion, of course. There have been multiple instances of police violence at Black Lives Matter protests. And right now on the ballot, there is a measure to overhaul police oversight, Measure 26-217, which we've talked about here on The Local. The court has restored protections for journalists and legal observers. Federal officers were previously allowed to force journalists and legal observers to leave a demonstration. Now, that's not the case due to a new ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Journalists and observers can remain in an area even after police order a crowd to disperse. Police also can't arrest or use physical force on anyone they should reasonably suspect to be a journalist or observer. The City of Portland, the Department of Homeland Security, and the Marshals Service are being sued by a group of journalists for violations of First and Fourth Amendment rights. In the ruling, Attorney Matthew Borden said this, The court's opinion affirms that the government cannot use violence to control the narrative about what is happening at these historic protests. And some good news. New plans approved for affordable housing in Washington County. Metro announced there would be seven new affordable housing projects coming to the area. That's 624 new units. The planned development areas are widespread. There'll be new projects in Tigard, Forest Grove, Cornelius, Aloha, Beaverton, and Tualatin. And in that announcement, Metro Councilor Juan Carlos Gonzalez had this to say. These affordable units will meet so many needs, serving farm workers, families, our aging community, veterans, our BIPOC community that needs stable housing, especially given the strain of COVID-19 on the economy. I'm proud that our region can work closely together and rise up to create more affordable housing. And that is today's Actually Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have an interview with Sean Cunningham, the Director of Communications and Strategic Initiatives for Multnomah County Library, and Rachel Bowen, the Campaign Coordinator for the Yes for Our Libraries campaign. They'll be talking with Jefferson Smith about how the pandemic has affected the library system and discussing the importance of the upcoming library bond measure that is headed to voters. Good morning, everybody. You got ballots coming soon. One of the things on that ballot is $387 million for Multnomah County Libraries. Don't worry, you won't each have to pay that. Each of us just pay a little bit for the library bond that is on that ballot. Here to discuss the bond is Sean Cunningham and Rachel Bowen. I should have said R because there's two of them. Sean's Director of Communications, Strategic Initiatives for Multnomah County Library. Rachel Brown is a campaign coordinator for the Yes for Our Libraries campaign. Sean and Rachel, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jefferson. Thanks for being here. Sean, starting with you, I, I got to ask, so... All of us are impacted. As I am here, normally I would have somebody else in the studio alongside with me. I'm looking across a plexiglass barrier at somebody wearing a mask. The pandemic, of course, is impacting everybody and everything in the country. What kind of impact has it had on the library system? Yeah, well, they have been profound. Um, I'd like to start by saying that since I am a library employee, you know, my, my part today here will 
be to provide just factual information. Um, but to 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 get to your question, the pandemic has. Well, otherwise, you just tell me lies. If you didn't work for lies, are you saying that Rachel is <laughs> no, just going to come in here and prevaricate? to restrictions around advocacy. Understood, understood. Um, the, the pandemic has required the library to fundamentally rethink how we do just about everything. So that means um, looking for ways to, to, to provide more content online, ways to pivot what had traditionally been in-person services to, to be things that we could do remotely or online, and ways to, to really focus our uh, public resources and all the, the time and good thinking of library staff to better serve the community as, as you mentioned, we're all going through this period of really fundamental and profound transformation due to the pandemic. Yeah, and you know, what I, what I just would, you know, add to that is, you know, it seems that the pandem pandemic, you know, has made it abundantly clear just how important digital access is and that, you know, accessing the internet is no longer a luxury, it's a necessity, and that we, you know, heard reports in Suffolk during quarantine sitting outside library branches, library branches um, accessing the internet. So many people, and that is a helpful segue even to this question, uh, Rachel, mm -hmm. and, and this again, Sean, is probably a question for you. It, it relates to the campaign, but it's particularly around just factual information about what the library's been up against. Like so many organizations, including ours, when we started hitting the pandemic, it's like, uh-oh, what do we got to brace ourselves for? We better. We, we might have to manage costs. We have to anticipate certain revenues going down. Uh, what are we going to do? The library made a decision that it was going to lay off a chunk of staff and then decided, uh, then reversed course after some labor negotiations and instead decided to develop some additional services. Walk us through to the extent, I mean, obviously you weren't involved probably in all those decisions, but walk us through a little bit of what you were going through trying to anticipate the needs of the library system and then also trying to address the needs of the workers in the library system and then kind of pivot the plan. Sure. Well, um, you know, tr traditionally what a public library has done has been um, a lot of services focused around close in-person settings. So uh, helping people access computers and technology, helping people, you know, navigate systems to apply for benefits or different kinds of social services. Um, you know, programs like story time. So all of those traditional things. I love story time. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're very popular. Um, but I don't, want to, I don't want the person reading me the story to give me a deadly disease is probably what you're getting. <laughs> that's, that's exactly the point. So, um, you know, like, like just about everyone else, we were sort of um, spent the first couple weeks and, um, you know, period thereafter, just assuming that it would be a fairly short-lived occurrence. And when it became evident that it wasn't, the library started looking to how it could essentially retool the organization to better serve the community. So that involved changing the fundamental priorities we use to focus our services and resources and to try to think of new ways that the library can serve its community to, to try to achieve those priorities. So, uh, you know, ultimately the, the pre-pandemic staffing model involved a huge percentage of the workforce basically involved in, you know, working inside of buildings and physically moving materials around. Um, our, our books and other items are moved by hand in large part at Multnomah County Library currently. And so we had, to, we had to think, how can the library better serve its community with the existing um, staff resources and utilizing their really deep expertise? So uh, ultimately, um, there were a number of positions that were eliminated through vacancies. A number of positions were uh, reshaped to do different things within the library to serve the community, like 
supporting home learning or uh, providing outreach for uh, homebound seniors or uh, online GED programs, things like that. Um, at the end of the day, every person who was affected by this process, which was governed by a labor agreement between AFSCME Local 88 and Multnomah County, was offered the opportunity to, to continue to remain employed in some capacity. Uh, one person declined that opportunity, but uh, otherwise folks are still employed. A portion of uh, the people who are affected and are working in uh, new roles are limited duration assignments, which, which may continue beyond a certain point, uh, but that is a minority of people in that position. So, you know, there's no good choice to be had when the Apple card is overturned in this way. And we worked closely with AFSCME Local 88 leadership and had a lot of support from Multnomah County to be able to find ways for affected workers to contribute to other community needs like contact tracing and other kinds of pandemic response functions. Rachel. And, and I just wanted oh, to more. Kind of piggyback, piggyback on kind of what Sean said. And, you know, one thing that the pandemic also made, you know, abundantly clear with physical distancing guidelines and he brought up and talking about story time in the pandemic is it brought attention to just how small our library branches are, right? So even though we're hugely popular with the fourth busiest library system in the nation in terms of circulation, we are 102nd in terms of space. So that was brought out, you know, through this pandemic and became abundantly clear. And then the second thing, you know, that I think the library has done a really great job of is, you know, digital usage is up dramatically. And I think Sean could probably have the, the numbers here, but because people are trying to navigate the new online landscape, you know, that we're living in and they're looking to the library for resources and tools to help them through that, um, whether it be teachers and students looking for online tutoring help or children and, you know, parents attending those story times virtually um, or distance learning programs for people learning English, um, the library has, you know, become more important than ever. Rachel, how did you get into this mess? Were you a library person prior? How did you decide, or how they rope you into helping on this campaign and leading yeah, that? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I'm Portland native. I grew up here. I was born and raised here, and I've been working in kind of nonprofits and campaigns for several years. And I'm a lifelong library lover, so it just was like the fusion of my two interests, honestly. Um, and my mom was a public school teacher, and you know, I just I really grew up kind of in the Hollywood books. library in the Hollywood branch back when it was now the French bakery and I remember going there like every single weekend with my mom and my sister and and this opportunity came up and again it was kind of the fusion of my two interests politics um, and you know being passionate about the library and the library's ability to serve the community so that's how I got here. Well thanks for being here and I don't know yeah, Rachel this might be a question for you this might be a question for Sean it's a question for both of you there won't be as much time for as many questions but let me ask it. <laughs> I think of libraries I actually that's not what I think about libraries anymore how I used to think about libraries is they are places to house books. I would go there and I would look for a book. Now, I don't look at as many printed books. Or if I do need as many printed books, I might be able to find them and have them delivered to me relatively cheaply and easily by some mega corporation that owns a significant share of the economy more than U.S. Steel did at the turn of the last century when people decided we wanted to change the order of our economy. But that's the subject of another show. And when I, uh, and when I think about libraries now, I think, well, there's still people who need access to books, but you already said there's also people that need access to Internet. What is the role of the library, not only today, but how do you think about the role of the library in 10 years with so much information digitized and the storage of books might be a more tertiary mission? Sean, why don't you start? Yeah, Sean, why don't you start? Then we'll go to Rachel. 
I'll just start by saying, you know, the, our, our library has a collection of uh, nearly 2 million books and other physical items, and those are not going away. Those are popular. You're not burning books. We're not, library. this is not going to fund a book burning. Nope. I think everybody appreciates it. <laughs> Absolutely not. We're adding other kinds of resources, but I'd like to let Rachel expand on that a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think one thing to remember here is that we've always relied on our libraries as community hubs, right? And now kind of as we emerge from the pandemic and start to recover through a tough economy, you know, libraries are going to be essential. So not just in terms of singular people checking out books, um, but students, parents and teachers as they're trying to kind of adjust online school. The library is going to be a critical resource for homework help and, again, for distance learning um, and for activities for teens. Job seekers are going to depend on the library and always have to learn new skills and find answers to the questions that they need. You know, senior citizens rely on and look to the library for tech help. Um, folks who are learning English look to the library for their multicultural resources and the resources that are in, you know, five different, five plus different languages. Um, and then lastly, you know, access to the Internet. And as I mentioned, you know, what we know about the Internet in the library is that the Multnomah County Library is the number one free Internet provider in the whole state of Oregon, which is, you know, a pretty astounding statistic. And, you know, the bond will provide high-speed, no-cost broadband Internet at all of these branches and help continue to make sure that the library is this digital lifeline for folks. And I think that can't be lost here, um, you know, when we know that 40% of our lowest income residents don't have access to the Internet at home, the library will continue to fill that role, and, and this bond will aid them in doing that with this new kind of um, high-speed broadband Internet. If I were a management consultant for the libraries, here would be a question I might have. And that is, what's the mission statement of a library? What should it be? And not just whatever might be ordered to be written on the website, although that could serve. But what ought it be in a way that was punchy enough and memorable enough and inspiring enough that it would get everybody moving? And, you know, heck, when Andrew Carnegie was donating a whole bunch of money for libraries, I think there are now, what, more libraries in the United States than McDonald's? There are a lot of libraries that, again, I'm thinking about it, something about, like, the storage of books. But my, my suspicion now is that the way you conceive of yourselves is something more like the repository for knowledge and the spur, the, the, a spur-er of learning or something like that. Sean, what, how do you conceive of the library's mission in the, you know, tightest way that you can think about it? Well, we, we do have a mission statement, and Multnomah County Library's mission is empowering our community to learn and create. Learn and create. That's helpful. So it makes me think of, is your real competitor FedEx office? Is it, is, well, do we think about the library as a third space, right? That Starbucks, which I'm fascinated by libraries, just to be clear. I nerd out in libraries. At some point, they're going to kick me off here because we have other things we have to talk about. And you have other things with your life you have to do. But I'm fascinated about libraries. And Starbucks said, you know, the third space. You have your home, you have your work, and you have that third space. And instead of the bar, we're going to have that be a coffee shop. It occurs to me... For a lot of people, the library is that third space, and that could be a place where you're productive as well as learn. And maybe that's why you need more space. Mm-hmm. How do you is the real competitor FedEx office? Well, the, the library doesn't have a competitor. The library's purpose is to serve individuals and communities. And yes. you know, 
I'm being I'm being silly. I, I, I'm being silly, Sean, about my competitor. I'm thinking about the role it plays in people's lives. Yeah, is that sort of alongside a place where you actually might go for people who you know have an apartment and aren't going to be going to an office where there also might be COVID? Uh, some you know, but also in the future for people who want that place to be productive. Maybe Rachel, you can pretend I asked a better question. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think there's two things here. I think the library absolutely is that space. It is a community hub, right? And and one of the things that we're facing with the library is, um, and what we're proposing with this bond, is the expansion and seven, the expansion of seven of our smallest tiny branches. Because what we know is people love our tiny, tiny branches, and yet they are too small. So this bond would expand those small neighborhood branches, Albina, Belmont, Holgate, Midland, North Portland, Northwest, and St. John's. And again, why these are you know, lovely branches, they haven't been updated in decades, if not longer, and simply put, our community has outgrown them. So in fact, you could fit all 19 of our branches into Seattle's one downtown branch with room to spare. Darn so Seattle. That, yeah, and so what that means is, you know, families are turned away from story time and folks that are trying to access the library for computers to upload their resume for a job are not being able to access that. So the Belmont Library is a great example of this. It's one of the busiest branches in the entire system, but it's the size of a postage stamp. The Belmont branch, you know, processes more holds in the central library, and Sean can attest to this. And it's also the branch where we see kids and families regularly turned away from story time or regularly waiting in line outside story times, and computers are always taken and space is so limited. Um, and, you know, the second piece here is in, in terms of creating a space where people want to be, I think the flagship is a really great example of this. So the flagship is a huge component of this bond, and it would be building this flagship library in Gresham, in East Multnomah County, in East Multnomah County, where we know 40% of the population is living, but only 20% of the library space is there. So this would be, you know, a home branch for folks in East Multnomah County, the size of the downtown central branch, um, for folks to call it home. That's their branch. Um, and to call it home and to have students have a place to read and folks have community groups, have community meeting rooms and, you know, there'll be plenty of space for lots of different story times so folks won't need to be turned away. And Rachel, what are the, it, it, let's take Albina Branch and Belmont Branch. One used to be next to my office, one is currently near, uh-huh. the stu- near my studios, uh, the studios where I am. The, uh, how much expansion are we talking? It goes from what to what? I actually am going to defer to Sean for that question. Sean. Yeah, so um, in, the, in the case of uh, Belmont Library, which is currently about 6,400 square feet, 6,500 square feet, the bond would expand that library location to about 20,000 square feet. Um, the Albina location, which actually we uh, just moved from its previous location at 15th and Fremont to its prior location on Northeast Knott Street, just uh, west of Martin Luther King Jr., um, that would go from what's about 6,000 square feet to about 30,000 square feet. That's a lot bigger. That site mm-hmm. That is a lot bigger. And that site is sort of kitty corner to the Matt Dishman Community Center in the Elliott. Which area. I used to work at. All coming full circle. And, and where Damon Stoudemire used to play for the Matt Dishman team and at the, in the <laughs> dawn of the AAU era in Portland and really sort of the emergence of what modern basketball looks like in the childhood in childhood context. But anyway, that's an, also another show. Got to ask before we go, where's the money come from? Rachel, uh, what's this tax look like? How much is it? And you talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so it's going to be $0.61 cents per $1,000 of assessed property value. 
Um, so what that boils down to is about $121 a year or $10 a month, and it's the best deal on the ballot. It's a great deal for you know our community. It's a great deal for you know the next generation. Um, it's absolutely you know worth the investment. The library has been a wonderful steward of taxpayer dollars, um, and they will continue to do so. So you said sixty-one cents per thousand dollars. Yes. So if you have a million-dollar house, which not everybody has, but the arithmetic should be easy, uh, that would be six hundred and ten dollars. So it's a set, it's for assessed property value, not market value. Right, right. So, so yeah. the, if the property tax person says that you own uh, that you have a million dollar house, let's say we say half a million dollars, uh, if for that's you know more people to have a half million dollar house, then six hundred and ten dollars, then then half of that be three, they'd pay three hundred and five dollars. That's correct. It's the assessed property value. Yep. All right, that's useful. Thank you. What should I have asked that I didn't? Sean, anything you need to throw in about the library? Any other li- any other pro library propaganda that is fact? Well, the library is here for you. You can uh, call for any kind of help at 503-988-5123 or visit our website. Rachel, where can people yeah. find out more? Totally. Um, you know, we can you can find out more at our website, which is yes4ourlibraries.org. Again, that's yes4ourlibraries.org. And we really, you know, I'd like to invite all of your listeners to go there, get involved. You know, we do have a couple phone banks and text banks. Um, you can find us on social media at yes for our libraries And then... You know, the last thing I'd say is just, you know, as we work to emerge from the impacts of COVID-19, you know, libraries are more essential than ever. And, you know, in uncertain times, the library helps the community put the pieces back together. And if we're going to make sure the next generation has access to a more comprehensive, you know, library and library services and space, we need to make that investment now. Thanks to Sean and Rachel for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving your five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow.